This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Justice Barrett? Um, Mr. Verrilli, if the court construes a statute in a particular way in order to avoid a constitutional question, wouldn't Congress be free to come back and say, no, 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 that is what we meant, and in this case, for example, we did want to rely on the commerce power? Justice Amy Coney Barrett was direct when asking questions during her first week of Supreme Court oral arguments, and perhaps less professorial than one might expect from a longtime academic. Of course, Barrett is no stranger to oral arguments after her time as a judge on the Seventh Circuit and as a clerk for the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Court watchers learned little about Barrett from her questioning, with one exception. Joining me is Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. Kimberly, explain how the first arguments are usually a chance for people to see how aggressive a new justice will be and the new dynamic on the court, and why that didn't happen with Justice Barrett. Right. So typically, a new justice often kind of takes a back seat during their first arguments. They kind of lay low, get the, you know, and the hang of being a justice. But we have some notable exceptions, in particular, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Gorsuch were very vocal um, in their first sittings, and they re- remained so on the Supreme Court bench. For Justice Barrett, though, things are a little different because the court is hearing arguments remotely. And instead of having this kind of free-for-all style where justices just jump in whenever they're ready, the justices are taking turns asking questions. And so we don't really know what kind of justice or what kind of questioner Justice Barrett is going to be until she actually gets into the courtroom. Also, you miss the facial expressions that people who are actually in the room can see in body language. That's right. And some of the justices are very big on their body language. And so the justice that comes to my mind is Justice Alito. You can often see exactly what he's thinking about an advocate's argument or about another justice's questioning right on his face. He doesn't take any precautions to really cover that at all. And of course, we miss that one while on the phone. And I remember Justice Gorsuch cutting in to correct the chief justice and then cutting in again to correct his correction of the Chief Justice. <laughs> That's right. And so one thing that really stands out for me whenever I think about the kind of justice that Justice Gorsuch is, is one of these arguments from his first sitting, where, as you mentioned, he interrupted the Chief Justice to correct him about which highway runs through Montana. And then later on in the argument, he had to interrupt again to say that he had actually been wrong and the Chief Justice had been right. That sticks out to me just because that's the kind of justice that Justice Gorsuch has been on the bench since. Very self-assured, willing to interject whenever he has a question. And again, we didn't get to get that kind of personality from Justice Barrett just because of the way that these arguments are taking place. What's your impression of her questions generally? Well, she seems to be very direct. She's not really showing her cards on how she is going to rule in these cases, but she is showing her cards in the sense that she wants to make it clear why she's asking a particular question of the advocate. She really wants to make sure that the advocate answers her question and has an opportunity to kind of address the things that she's been thinking about. At least that's the way it seems as an observer. She was a law professor for about 15 years, but does she question like a law professor? For example, do we hear a lot of hypotheticals? We do not. And so one of the other justices on the court who was a law professor is Justice Breyer, and he is known for his very long and involved hypotheticals. But that's just not something we've seen from Justice Barrett so far and not something that we saw from her while she was sitting on the Seventh Circuit for a couple of years as well. 
You said she doesn't really tip her hand, and I wonder if that's common to most new justices on the court. I remember thinking that Justice Kavanaugh didn't tip his hand very much during his first term on the bench. That's right. So Justice Kavanaugh was more along the lines of what we traditionally see from a new justice, somebody who kind of hung back, laid low, didn't really tip his hand. And we've seen that's really how he's been on the bench since then. But, you know, there's a saying among the justices that it takes five years to really settle into being a Supreme Court justice. So Justice Kavanaugh is still pretty new. I hadn't heard that before. Is there a reason why they settled on five? (laughs) I think five is just a nice round number. I think the (laughs) point is just that it takes some time to really get into the rhythm of the court and get into the rhythm of hearing cases and writing opinions and considering what cases to come before you. It's a lot of work for a new justice. Now, there was one instance where Barrett may have tipped her hand. In a case pitting religious freedom against gay rights, Barrett signaled that she might be willing to overturn Employment Division versus Smith, a 30-year-old precedent written by Justice Scalia. What would you replace Smith with? Would you just want to return to Sherbert versus Werner? Yes, she did. And so one of the questions that the petitioner specifically asked in this case is for the court to overrule what's really been a very unpopular Supreme Court decision, and she seemed open to doing that. And of course, that's important not just because of the impact it would have on you know, religious freedom, but also because of the implications for other precedents that she might be open to overruling things like Roe versus Wade and things on affirmative action and similar, more controversial issues. I've been talking to Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson, Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter. President-elect Joe Biden has pledged to nominate a woman of color to the Supreme Court should the opportunity arise. But he's not said anything about his choice for Solicitor General. The country's top advocate at the Supreme Court often called the 10th Justice. The Office of the Solicitor General argues by far the most high court cases each term and has traditionally been a springboard for female and male litigators to build Supreme Court practices. But the Supreme Court bar is still largely made up of white males. So many female appellate litigators and progressive advocates are saying Biden should make diversity a priority in picking his Solicitor General and choose a woman for the post. I was actually surprised to learn from your piece that Only one woman was ever confirmed to be Solicitor General, and she's sitting on the court right now. That's right. Justice Elena Kagan was the first woman confirmed to the post. Barbara Underwood, uh, who is now the Solicitor General of New York, had served in an acting role. Um, But an interesting note about Justice Kagan is that her first appellate argument came uh, as the Solicitor General, arguing on behalf of the federal government in Citizens United. So it was a good debut, I guess. Biden hasn't, as far as I know, given any hints about who he might appoint to be Solicitor General. So is there like a concerted effort to have him appoint a woman as Solicitor General? Well, I think one of the things that's driving uh, this push to appoint a woman is that we really see that the number of female advocates versus male advocates is really abysmal. Uh, it ranges between 12 and 21% in recent terms, and it's been very low uh, recently under the Trump administration. And part of the reason is the Office of the Solicitor General. They argue by far more cases than anyone else in the Supreme Court. And so having a woman in that top spot and having more women in that office in general uh, would raise those numbers quite a bit and uh, could go a long way to getting some parity uh, among advocates. Is anyone actually making a plea to Biden to appoint a woman as Solicitor General? 
I think they think that it's in line with some of the goals that he's talked about. So we, we see not only that he's looking for diversity in the Supreme Court, but in his transition team in general, if you look on their webpage, they talk a lot about how their transition team are really diverse, made up not only of, you know, male and females, but of different ethnicities, different races. Uh, and so I think they're, they're thinking that this is along what he's going to be thinking of anyway. So tell us about some of the women who are being sort of talked up for Solicitor General. Well, I think most of uh, the people we're seeing are people who have actually had some experience in the office serving as assistants to the Solicitor General. There were a number of women who, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, uh, left and took a lot of uh, good experience with them into private practice and have been uh, building their resumes there ever since. And, uh, you know, I think court watchers think that it's probably going to be somebody with experience from the Solicitor General's office, just because the office has uh, done things a little differently uh, under the Trump administration. And so the hope is that we'll be able to get back to some of the norms under that office under the Biden administration. What kind of norms are we talking about that were strayed from in the Trump administration? I think think most notably, um, this idea of trying to jump over the federal courts of appeals and get right into the Supreme Court. Not only has the Trump administration brought many of those requests, more than um, any other administration, but the Supreme Court has been granting a lot of those requests. And so uh, we saw even Justice Sotomayor write a blistering opinion uh, to her colleagues and chiding them for allowing the Solicitor General's office to jump over the federal courts and not allowing the system to work the way that it's intended to work. Is there one candidate or two candidates whose names sort of pop up a lot? There are. I would say there are about 10 candidates whose names pop up. All would be really great. I think some of the front runners, or at least one front runner in my mind, is uh, a partner at Mayor Brown, Nicole Saharsky. She actually on her law firm bio mentions that she's argued the most cases of any woman in the last decade, and she was in the Solicitor General's office for quite a long time, Uh, and so she has the experience, I think, that people are looking uh, for the newest SG to bring to the office. Does the Attorney General have a lot of say, usually, in who the Solicitor General is? Yes, and so we'll probably see the Biden administration um, try to pick their attorney general and their deputy attorney general before moving on to the solicitor general pick. Um, right now, the office is being headed by an acting solicitor general, um, but I would expect that to change and for you know, a staff attorney in the office to take over acting uh, while the Biden administration picks its choice for the top federal government lawyer in the Supreme Court. Another factor is that there have been very few solicitor generals of color over the years. There really has um, only been a handful. Most notably is uh, later Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was solicitor general before he sat on the bench. Um, But definitely, you know, there are a number of candidates uh, who are both female and who are attorneys of color who would fit the bill. So, Uh, You know, we could see Joe Biden kind of kill two birds with one stone. I want to turn for a moment to Justice Alito. Justice Alito spoke to the Federalist Society, and his remarks got a lot of attention, much of it negative attention, 
can you tell us a little bit about what he said that drew attention? Well, I think for me, the thing that really, when I was watching the remarks, that really stuck out to me the most is he was talking about the COVID restrictions. And he said that they had brought upon the most limitations on our civil rights than we've ever seen before. And he went into specifics. He talked about uh, religion. He talked about uh, free speech. He talked about gun rights. All of these things he said were under attack under under the COVID crisis. And we just point out that he is, and along with Clarence Thomas, is one of the most consistent conservative votes on the court. He certainly is. So he's an appointee of George Bush um, and has consistently been on the conservative side of issues. We've actually seen him calling for certain cases to be brought in front of the court so the court can overturn a long-standing precedent. So it's not as if we didn't already know that Justice Alito was conservative, um, but it was something to see when he was talking so forcefully about issues that seem likely to come before the court uh, sometime soon. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. The stakes in the Georgia Senate runoffs in January couldn't be much higher. Control of the U.S. Senate. Republican Senators David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are facing off against Democratic challengers John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. With Republicans holding a 50-48 to 48 seat advantage following the general election, the GOP could have as many as 52 seats in the next Congress, while Democrats are trying for an even split, which would give Vice President-elect Kamala Harris the tie-breaking vote. So what are the strategies of the candidates and their parties? Joining me is Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. Kyle, they say turnout is the key in these runoffs. What are each party's prospects of getting their voters out? Well, the surge in male voting, I think, serves to benefit Democrats who historically have done terribly in runoffs uh, in Georgia. I'm not sure they've ever won one for a federal race. But the fact that they can get their voters to either register to vote and then to vote early or vote by mail um, before January 5th, I think is a big advantage for them. Whereas in the past, getting all their voters to turn out on a specific day has proved uh, not successful. Um, so Republicans go into this with the advantage because their voters are more likely to turn out in, at odd times elections. The Democrats, because of the pandemic and everything that's gone on this year, um, and all the mail voting that we saw uh, in the November 3rd election, um, it looks like this is a toss-up race because of that. Has there been any analysis, done about why Republicans have won these runoffs in Georgia, why their voters seem more willing to come out? I'm not sure that there has. I mean, obviously, the Democratic coalition relies on voters who don't turn out as often as Republican voters do. And it, it's sort of as simple as that. Um, and runoffs were put in place sort of to help the majority party. And so that's kind of the basics of it. The GOP, you have Purdue and Loeffler aligned with President Trump, including aligned on, obviously, on his claims that the election is rigged. Will it help them or hurt them that by the time this runoff takes place, Biden will most likely be declared the winner by the Electoral College. So how does that affect the GOP voters? Well, I think the fact that more Republicans haven't come out to congratulate 
President-elect Joe Biden, um, or even recognize that he is the president-elect, I think is directly related to their turnout hopes in Georgia. Um, they want Trump base to be angry and to think they got robbed and to take it out um, at the ballot box, frankly. And so that is why you're seeing them align with Trump. Having said that, they, they also have to gin up turnout now. Um, and so, you know, you'll see Leffler saying the Republican Party is relying on us to not only hold the Senate, but to you know, save the country. You know, they're putting it in really big terms. But, you know, given the way the math is, Republicans have 50 seats in the Senate right now. Democrats have 48. And so that sort of sets up a quandary for Republicans who want to be able to express to their base, you know, the urgency of, of this vote. They want to say Democrats would take, take control of the Senate by winning both seats. But when you say that, you have to concede that President Trump has lost. And so they're juggling this, you know, they're on this weird line right now of, of saying Tr President Trump hasn't lost yet and yet sort of having to concede that he has lost so that they can um, signify to their voters what the stakes are. That if Democrats win both seats, they will control the Senate. Chuck Schumer will control what bills come to the floor. Um, and in Republicans' words, the Democratic, you know, radical agenda will take over. President Trump is notoriously unpredictable. What could or might President Trump do about Georgia? I mean, might he go down there and might he tweet about it? Or is he just not interested in it at this point? Yeah, it seems his interests are very much elsewhere, um, centered more on himself. Um, having said that, uh, Mike Pence is heading there. There is a huge uh, Republican fundraising operation being run by Karl Rove. Um, which is separate from Trump. Um, but I'm not sure if we will see Trump. His, uh, I, I think the White House said, you know, if, if you know, it fits in his schedule, he might go down there. That tells me he's probably not going to go down there. But we do know how much he enjoys rallies. And if there's an opportunity to get down there um, and have supporters, you know, uh, be behind him and, and perhaps get a couple wins before he leaves office, you know, maybe we will see him down there. Two things you mentioned bring up questions for me. First, bringing in outsiders. Senator Marco Rubio was down there in a Save Our Majority rally. Do Georgians really care that much about outsiders coming in and telling them what to do? <laughs> uh, not, you know, I, I, I think just generally speaking, uh, you know, having surrogates like that come to the trail um, probably doesn't do a lot. But, you know. I think Marco Rubio was there for a specific reason, um, specifically to highlight uh, Republican rhetoric that, you know, Democrats support a socialist agenda. Um, and we saw that really take hold in Miami-Dade County in Marco Rubio's home state of Florida, where um, Trump severely overperformed compared to what he did in 2016, while Biden got basically the same amount of votes as Hillary Clinton. And it led to Democrats losing two House seats down there. And so we're going to see Republicans using that line a lot in this election um, and then for the next two years as well, no matter what happens in Georgia. There was a lot of outside money poured into some Senate races, for example, in South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham eventually won. Are we likely to see a lot of outside money being poured in here to buy campaign ads and the like? Oh, yeah. I, I believe we've already seen more than $120 million in TV time be booked. The Democratic candidates have both reportedly brought in about $40 million since the election. Um, you know, the Democrats around the country 
as soon as they saw Joe Biden um, was winning or about, you know, about to win or once the race was called, uh, it, it looks like their attention immediately turned to Georgia uh, to try to bring along the Senate with him and, and help him get his agenda across. So um, money is pouring in. You know, in states like South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham obviously was reelected, uh, I think he was reelected by 10 points. And, um, you know, his opponent was the first candidate ever to raise more than $100 million. Uh, so in deep red states, we, we saw fundraising not really help Democrats that much. Uh, Mitch McConnell's challenger raised, you know, something like $90 million. And she lost by double digits as well. Uh, but Georgia is a battleground state now. And so the money and the message that the money is going to be paying for um, could really make a difference here. Are we likely to see negative campaigning, attack ads perhaps? Yeah, there's uh, plenty of attack ads uh, flying right now. There, so, you know, the, uh, there's two different races, of course. Raphael Warnock is challenging Kelly Leffler, who's the appointed senator, um, and they're running for to fill the final two years um, of, of Johnny Isaacson's term. He uh, resigned uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, so there's ads being run against Raphael Warnock, who's um, the longtime senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, which was Martin Luther King Jr.'s congregation. Um, but the ads are criticizing him for speaking up in support of Jeremiah Wright, who was President Obama's controversial pastor in, in Chicago. Um, and then for uh, even for working at a church 25 years ago um, in New York, I believe, um, that had invited Fidel Castro to speak. Um, so they're they're um, attacking him for, you know, things like that. Uh, and then John Ossoff, the other Democrat, who's challenging David Perdue, the Republican first term senator. I think they put him his picture up next to Bernie's, Nancy Pelosi's, AOC's and Chuck Schumer's, you know, with the big block letters, radical agenda. So you know, those types of ads. And then it's, it's going both ways as well. Um, Democrats are really hitting David Perdue and Kelly Leffler um, for the stock uh, sales they made shortly after uh, the Senate coronavirus briefing in January. Um, so you're seeing that in both races. So looking at Kelly Leffler, and I'm wondering, does she benefit from being sort of tied here to Purdue, or we're going to see more of the... I think one of the ads was like rich, out of touch white folks. That's right. Both and of them seem like the same kind of candidate in certain ways. Does she benefit or is it a detriment to her to be tied to Purdue? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, as a, as a woman, you would think she might have um, a better chance of um, appealing to some suburban Republican women who maybe had been turned off by Trump, uh, but would like to support a Republican down ballot. Um, so, you know, it's possible that, that being tied to Purdue, um, you know, may hurt that advantage that she otherwise would have had. But, you know, Purdue has been around longer. People know him more. Um, so I think it actually is an advantage to her um, to be tied to him. And, you know, it, this sort of goes to a larger point that, you know, one party is probably going to win both of these races. And so as David Purdue goes, so goes Kelly Leffler and, and same for the Democrats. So we'll see. But yes, that, I think Warnock criticized them as a way to show that he's sort of, you know, the regular guy who's gone through the same struggles as they have uh, versus these two former CEOs who are very wealthy. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that he sort of goes after both of them in one ad, not just Kelly Leffler, who he's running against. Warnock and Ossoff campaigned together before the general. 
Are they likely to do that? And what's their advantage or disadvantage to being tied together? Yeah, they are likely to do that. I think they've already appeared together in the runoff uh, at least once. Uh, but, you know, the other thing is that they can spread out now uh, across the state. And so um, being tied to each other is helpful because you have it's almost like, you know, you have another you who can go out there and, and talk to voters. You can be in two places at once. Um, and so I think that's the real advantage. Uh, Raphael Warnock is obviously he, he's black. And, and so he could probably he I think Democrats are hoping can appeal to um, the state's large uh, black electorate um, and really motivate them to turn out. And, and so that would obviously be a benefit to Ossoff. Um, and I think that's sort of the, those are probably the main points that, that are, you know, that's why it's actually a good thing for them. What is the path that the Democrats see to victory in the runoff elections? What areas are they targeting? So there are two huge suburban counties um, outside Atlanta that have shifted from Republican to Democratic over the last four to eight years. And those are Cobb and Gwinnett counties. They are just northeast and northwest of Atlanta. And Gwinnett County is heavily immigrant. It it features a lot of, you know, new Georgians, uh, people who have recently moved to the state, either from out of state or from other countries. And then you have Atlanta's own Fulton County. That's the place where I think Biden won by, you know, 250,000 votes. So they really need to get their margins up in those two swing counties that have gone blue and then, you know, make sure their turnout is huge in Atlanta. Um, and then you also have Chatham County, which is down in the southeast of the state. And that's where Savannah is. Um, that's another huge Democratic population. And then you can go over to the west where um, Columbus, Georgia is. And that's not as big of a population, but it's still um, heavily Democratic. And so they really need to run up their margins there because in all the rural areas everywhere else, they're going to be losing. And the problem for Republicans is all those other rural counties are pretty low in population. I mean, it's really all about Atlanta, but there are other pockets of Democratic voters that could make the difference in a very close election. And everything we're seeing right now is these are going to be two very close elections. Trump and Biden are obviously not going to be on the ballot, so they're not going to be draws. Does that affect the Republicans or the Democrats more? I guess you could just take a guess. No, I, I, you know, I, I think we don't just have to guess because we can look at 2018 when, when this happened before. Republicans did terribly around the country. The Trump voters did not turn out. And so that is the big fear among Republicans right now. With Trump not on the ballot, will his strongest supporters, who love him more than they love the Republican Party, will they turn out or not? And that is a big question mark. That could be really bad for the GOP. Thanks, Kyle. That's Kyle Trigstad, politics editor, Bloomberg Government. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. (laughs) 